you are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hi there, welcome to this week's podcast. Today I speak to Andrea Lamar and we talk about uh, many things actually. Some research that she does and she writes um, for Science of Eating Disorders, a website that I'm sure that a lot of you know as a blogger. Um, but the reason that I actually contacted Andrea initially was I heard of some work that she's doing in Canada regarding the calorie values on um, food items and sort of on menus and restaurant chains, which is something I feel rather strongly about. We get into that discussion a bit. Um, pretty interesting stuff. So listen up and um, here's the podcast. The first question that I asked Andrea, the same as everybody else, is to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's Andrea. Okay, sure. So I am a PhD candidate at the University of Guelph, and that's in Ontario in Canada. And my research focuses on the experiences of people in eating disorder recovery and uh, their supporters as well. So I have done qualitative interviews, and I do a research method called digital storytelling, which is essentially filmmaking uh, with people and their family members when they have gone through an eating disorder and they're kind of come through the other side. Um, and then also I blog at Science of Eating Disorders, um, so I'm one of two primary bloggers there. Um, and I, what else do I do? Um, a number of different things. I'm the chair, a co-chair of the Waterloo Wellington Eating Disorders Coalition, which is a local um, coalition of professionals, uh, researchers, and therapists who are interested in helping people with eating disorders. Um, and I'm also on the social media committee for the Academy for Eating Disorders. Um, I'm the chair of the social media committee for the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health. Um, and I'm just kind of generally active in the social media space around eating disorders. Um, can you tell me a little bit what um, what got you interested in working like you do in the eating disorder space? Sure. So um, when I was younger, I experienced an eating disorder um, and I was quite privileged in terms of access to treatment. I was able to access uh, decent treatment in a relatively quick amount of time. And so I would say I was able to come out the other side of it. And that was about eight years ago. Um, I took a couple years off from anything related to eating disorders because I wanted to distance myself from that and kind of establish who I was beyond the eating disorder. But once I was kind of very solidly into my recovery, I thought that I'd like to make um, life better for those who had experienced eating disorders, especially for those who were um, slightly less privileged than myself um, and who might have difficult accessing treatment. So I started looking at eating disorders from a sociological social justice perspective um, to try and minimize barriers to treatment um, in that way. I knew I didn't want to do clinical work. Um, I was much more interested in doing research and uh, kind of making sure that I could make my mark and perhaps do some research that could lead to actual policy change specifically. And when you talk about social justice, um, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, so basically, I just mean kind of debunking myths and stereotypes around eating disorders, specifically the idea that um, that pervasive stereotype that only very young, white, thin girls get eating disorders. Um, so I've been very focused on expanding the definition of who it is that might get an eating disorder, um, how to make it easier for those people to be seen as, you know, legitimately suffering and for their stories to be told, as well as for them to access treatment. Because we know there are so many different barriers to treatment, including, you know, financial barriers, barriers related to racism, 
barriers related to classism and uh, sexism and all of these things that get in the way of kind of understanding that absolutely anybody could get an eating disorder and absolutely everybody deserves quality treatment for eating disorders. So tell me a little bit about the things that you've been working on more recently. So recently um, I've been doing some work with the government or toward the government of Ontario and the government of Canada um, around uh, calorie counts on menus and uh, forthcoming legislation to do with nutrition labels and trying to get the eating disorder voice heard in those spaces. So back in December, um, I was made aware of the new legislation that was coming into effect in January, which would dictate that all um, chain restaurants, those are classified as restaurants with more than 20 locations, would be required to have calorie counts on their menus. And those calorie counts would need to be as large as, or if not larger than the price of the item. And so a number of different people were um, asking me to maybe go and start a petition um, about this to try and get the eating disorder voice heard, because essentially um, there was a fear that these calorie counts would make it harder for people in recovery to stay in recovery, because while obviously a lot of people with eating disorders kind of know how many calories are going to be in something already, um, it's one thing to know that. And it's another thing to be actively trying to fight looking at that and to have it kind of staring you in the face on the menu. So I started a um, petition and it now has over a thousand signatures, essentially asking the government of Canada to repeal the act. Um, unfortunately, it had already gone into place and every, all the restaurants had spent, you know, $50,000 plus on rejigging their menus. And so the menu calorie counts did roll out. I started getting a lot of media attention around uh, the end of December, beginning of January about this petition with people basically asking me, you know, why are you bothering to do this? And they really didn't understand eating disorders and they didn't understand how this could be a problem. So I kind of leveraged this as an interesting opportunity to start talking more about eating disorders in the public space. Um, because a lot of the responses that I were getting were along the lines of, well, why don't people with eating disorders just, you know, manage their triggers? Are they all special snowflakes? And I was like, of course, they're not all special snowflakes. Like, it's just that these people are trying to deal with a very difficult circumstance, and there aren't a lot of treatment options available for them to help them out. So you're essentially asking people to pull up their socks, but without providing any additional support to help them manage their triggers and navigate this world where we're so faced with, you know, messages about we all should be, you know, consuming less, we all should be exercising more, which are exactly not the messages that people in eating disorder recovery need to hear. Even as somebody in a very solid recovery and have been for over six years now, I still notice it. It mm. may not affect my decision, but I still notice it. And I, I was having this conversation with my husband actually the last time we were in Wendy's because I just don't want to know. I don't want to know how many calories are in a Dave's burger, how many calories are in a chicken burger. And um, it, it really was interesting to him that I even noticed that because he says when he goes up to the counter, he doesn't even look at that. Yeah, exactly. My boyfriend actually had a very similar response. He was like, I don't even know what a calorie is. And I'm like, yeah, that's the strange thing. And I think that's why it's so hard for people to empathize with it, right? Because if you don't have that history, or you don't know somebody who has that history and you haven't seen it kind of in action, I think it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around how this could possibly be a problem. But it, it so can be. Oh, and, um, you know, as a recovery coach, I work with people that are in the trenches right now. And it, it's not just, it, it's a complete derailer 
if it's a complete will throw somebody off even if they have worked on it beforehand and they've psyched themselves up now i'm going to go in here and i'm going to buy this thing just seeing that information can feel like a tripwire and just completely put one off the train of thought and start to sort of panic and feel stressed um and all of those things emotions will just come right in um all from just seeing that piece of information it's actually incredible that it has that effect but it really does i another thing that i i often wonder about this is i'm assuming that the idea to put um um, calorie quantity values in restaurant trains is to try and battle the um, inverted commas obesity crisis and make people who are obese make better decisions again in inverted commas about what they're going to eat and I wonder is there actually any research that shows that by putting the calorie value next to a food item it changes anybody's decision other than a person with an eating disorder um, essentially, the evidence is very, very weak. So there was actually a really recent study that I found super helpful in terms of helping kind of our case, which is that it has been beginning to be shown to impact people with eating disorders uh, decisions, which um, obviously we knew, but people were like, well, show me the evidence. And I'm like, oh, good. Now there's a study that shows this evidence. But on the other hand, the kind of argument that they're making is around just what you're saying, that quote unquote obesity crisis. And the idea that it would help people make, uh, quote unquote, healthy choices. But definitely the evidence on that is extremely weak. If it does show that people do make a choice that is lower in calories at that particular meal, they really don't often follow up in terms of what meals people are choosing at other points in their day. Or whether if somebody chooses a lower calorie meal at one meal, they might potentially binge um, at a later meal because they've restricted, right? And as we know, a restriction can lead to a binge later on because your body is deprived of nutrients. So there isn't a whole lot of robust evidence, I would say, that it actually leads to the effects that they intend. And then, I mean, obviously, we can kind of critique the whole idea of focusing on body weight as a target at all, because, you know, who's to say that that's really a helpful way of improving public health i know that most people are, oh maybe it's just the world that i'm in maybe i should say i hope that most people are coming around to realization that actually um focusing on weight doesn't help anybody lose weight mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm not sure what the general public thinks because similarly i think i surround myself with people who are of a like mind with me and are thinking well, obviously, it doesn't help to stigmatize people and it doesn't help to focus on weight because it's not about weight. But then I go, kind of go out into the rest of the world sometimes and I'm astounded by the things that people say or the assumptions people make about people's weights and what that means about their health status. Um, and I think that doing all the media um, that I did around the Healthy Choices Act, which is what this is called, uh, really opened my eyes to how people in the general public don't think about eating disorders and they also don't question the idea that weight and health are equivalent you know what we were saying earlier about you know i said i i spoke to my husband about it and you said you'd had a similar conversation it's incredible to me that somebody living with a person with an eating disorder he didn't automatically assume that that sort of information would have an effect on me um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he always has my best interests at heart. And as soon as I explained it to him, he was like, oh, OK, yeah, no problem. Like, we don't we don't need you. You don't need to look at that stuff. Um, 
so, but then again, possibly not surprising then that the general public, of course, don't even give it a thought um, and how detrimental the effect can be. But do you think that by raising awareness of how detrimental the effect is, we could actually get that changed? Um, yes and no. So I think that in terms of the actual act that has come into effect, I'm not sure that there's really any hope. My big hope has become that this doesn't spread. I think that by raising awareness about the impact that it can have, um, I did have some very, uh, I would say, excellent conversations with people from the media who I felt kind of started to understand as we talked how this could be a problem. Um, and so that was really encouraging to me in terms of just like stopping this oncoming tide where it seems that it's a bit of a trend for everywhere to want to put calorie counts on menus. I think that the scientific evidence will be much more convincing as well. Um, because I think that while stories are really impactful for people and especially the quotes on the petition have been absolutely phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. I mean, people have left all sorts of different comments about how this will impact their lives. And I think those are very impactful for people to hear on a human level. But ultimately, when it comes down to government decision making, they're always looking for some sort of scientific evidence. So I think if more studies like the one that has recently come out could be conducted, I think that would be very compelling for uh, government in terms of thinking about what they're doing. And then I suppose another thing to comment on is that we did also meet with uh, the government of Canada, um, and they are interested in doing some changes to our nutrition labels here. Um, and they were very open to hearing from the eating disorder stakeholders. Um, and we talked with them for about an hour. We talked about how they were planning on putting, uh, I think it was exclamation marks on uh, certain items of food that had higher sodium or higher fat or higher sugar. Um, and while it wasn't uh, calories, obviously people can fixate on a number of different nutrients. And uh, we were like, that would be read by someone with an eating disorder uh, very problematically as like, stay away from this food forever, never eat it, even in some sort of moderation. Mm -hmm. um, and they were very open to hearing from us. And they, you know, they were very receptive. They, they said, you know, I've never thought about it this way, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, that's good. Um, you saying that reminds me of in England, um, they have a traffic light system where foods are labeled as um, red, yellow or green. And obviously green being healthy and yellow being in the middle and red being not so. And those are a real problem for people in recovery from eating disorders in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that red just screams at you. <laughs> You're not allowed this, um, which, yeah. which can be really difficult. So you're right, I think it can, be, it, can be, it can be calories, but it can also be symbols. In fact, any kind of indication which really acts as a judgment on the food. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you mentioned um, science of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, just in case um, anybody listening doesn't know um, about that website. Yeah, so basically um, what we are is we are a blog and we take peer-reviewed research articles um, and we read them and we do kind of a explanation and often critique of the articles and they're all related to eating disorders. And usually everyone who writes for the site has a history of an eating disorder as well as some sort of uh, academic background to allow them to access the articles and do the critique. Um, so it was started by a woman named Tatiana, um, I believe in 2012, and I've been writing since 2014. So I've written about 80 posts there, um, just about various subjects related to eating disorders. Usually mine focus on qualitative research because that's my 
area of specialty and Tatiana does a lot more of the kind of neuro psych stuff. Um, but she's kind of moved away from writing uh, more recently. And tell me, so you just said you've written 80 articles then there. If you could pick one that stands out in your mind, what what would it be? I know that's a putting you on the spot question. You probably can't remember all of them, but um, there must be some that stand out. Yeah, I did a series um, of five posts about the lack of training for eating disorder professionals and doctors in general um, with regard to eating disorders. And that one was very well received in terms of uh, just people being like, wow, I didn't realize that a lot of the time doctors only get, you know, at most three hours of training on eating disorders in their entire med school experience. And I think that was really striking for folks um, just in terms of really the call for much, much increased training um, amongst medical professionals. Um, another one that was really popular was um, my focus on culture um, because it was kind of expanding beyond just the kind of stereotypical perspective where people with eating disorders are, you know, unduly influenced by body image. It was going much further beyond that and looking at how people in different cultures get eating disorders, um, what those eating disorders look like when they do happen in other cultures and kind of expanding beyond this idea that culture is only about body image because culture is about all sorts of things, including, you know, politics and economy and um, all of the different cultural trappings of different groups. Oh, that is fascinating. So I know that the, um, the way that anorexia was termed in the Middle Ages, um, anorexia mirabilis, however you pronounce it, um, and that was, that was more cultural in that um, people were starving themselves in the name of God or for religion. Um, mm -hmm. I always found that fascinating. Um, what, what, do you, what do you remember sort of, what do you think was the most interesting about different cultures that you look, looked at and um, about how eating disorders presented themselves? Um, so there's the classic kind of Katzman and Lee study about uh, eating disorders in uh, Hong Kong, where there were people presenting with what looked to be anorexia, but uh, the people did not have any kind of fear of fatness or body image distortion. And I thought that that was, uh, that's always a really nice one to kind of illustrate how, you know, eating disorders go much beyond kind of this preoccupation with thinness, and there's a lot more involved. Another one that I always think is interesting to look at is the... Uh, Becker studies in Fiji, which are often taken to illustrate how the introduction of television can lead to uh, eating disorders, but really what people don't take into account when they read that article and what is actually present in the article is an exploration of how um, at the time that television was being introduced in Fiji, there was also a huge change in terms of urbanization um, and socioeconomic stress um, and that the eating disorders kind of came alongside not only an increased preoccupation with kind of media imagery, but also this idea that, uh, you know, we all need to be productive citizens. We all need to be very much um, focused on doing more and doing better. So kind of a broader cultural preoccupation with kind of the urbanized lifestyle as opposed to just like a vanity thing. Yeah, I love those ones. So Andrea, is there, um, is there anything else like exciting going on that you'd, you'd like to tell us about? Well, in Canada, we've got some great work going on um, kind of yeah, at the policy level that I could briefly comment on. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that um, often Canada gets kind of left out of the picture, but we're also um, doing some interesting advocacy work. There's a group here called the National Initiative for Eating Disorders, and they are a group of parents that came together and um, also joined up with a number of psychotherapists and other professionals in the eating disorder world as their kind of clinical advisory team. And they are um, lobbying 
all the time in, uh, in the government to get eating disorders on the national policy agenda, to get increased funding for eating disorders. And we put together, um, or we're starting to work on a national strategy for eating disorders that would basically allow us to connect across the country to facilitate access to treatment, to talk about, you know, collaboration on research projects, to talk about better ways of engaging in advocacy, better ways of working in school systems, in, you know, increasing training for doctors. It's essentially just like a coordinated national strategy, bringing together essentially all of the stakeholders that we can reach across the country to work together, as opposed to working in what happens right now is a lot of silos, um, because Canada obviously is quite large, but not very populous. We end up kind of doing one thing in Ontario, not really talking a lot to for BC, for instance. And so there can be really great pockets of things going on with regard to eating disorders in each of those spaces, but we don't do a lot of um, as much communication as we could. And so this strategy has been um, a fantastic way of really coming together as a country and working on ways to actually improve the situation for eating disorders. Because while we have publicly funded healthcare, we actually have like huge wait lists for treatment. We don't have a lot of community support for treatment. We have an abysmal amount of uh, beds available for people who need them. We barely have any um, psychiatrists who specialize in eating disorders, and we don't have a lot of funding for eating disorder research. And so this is kind of really a great way, again, to draw awareness about that. And we've got, um, there's been a motion filed in the House of Commons that would support the building of this strategy. So we're doing uh, kind of that policy work at an ongoing basis. That's great work. Yeah, it feels good. It must be wonderfully exciting to be involved in something like that that, that could potentially change treatment for thousands of people. Yeah, it feels really good. And it was amazing. We went to um, Ottawa for uh, National Eating Disorder Awareness Week here in Canada at the beginning of February. And we met with the Prime Minister's wife, and she came and she gave a little talk about her experience with an eating disorder. And it was just one of the most amazing moments of my life so far to be a part of this kind of sea change in Canada. And if you were um, looking at, at the um, Canadian system of treatment for eating disorders, as it's set up right now, where do you think that the major changes need to be made um, first of all? I think that, like, I mean, personally, I think there needs to be a lot more community-based treatment. Um, we currently don't have much that's in between hospital treatment and uh, just kind of your bare bones uh, outpatient treatments that's kind of seeing somebody maybe once a week. I think there needs to be a lot more um, that allows people to live their lives but also be accessing eating disorder treatment um, because not everybody can just kind of stop everything and go to inpatient right away and not everybody's ready to do that and we don't we also don't have a lot in terms of transitional support between hospitals and back into quote unquote, the real world. And so a lot of times we have people kind of cycling in and out of treatment um, because they've re-encountered the stressors in their lives. And so I think if we can bolster the community-based treatment available to people, I think that would be a wonderful start. I think especially for adults as well, the being able to access support where it's needed because not everybody can drop life and go to inpatient or stay there for a very long period of time, especially if they don't have health insurance. And, um, or even coming out, life has to resume, especially if one is an adult and needs to work 
in able to finance treatment there's just um i think there's a lot of things that that those lower levels of care and community support can really help fill gaps with there um andrea if if people want to learn more about you um where can they find out where can they learn about you um, so I have a website. Um, it's just my name, www.andrealamar.com. Um, and then I'm also always on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is AndreaLALA89. It's kind of a weird Twitter handle, but I uh, made it and then I got a certain amount of followers and I was like, if I change it, I'll confuse people. So I just <laughs> kept it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll put links to all of those things um, and the Science of Eating Disorders website in the show notes as well. Big thank you to Andrea for um, talking to me and actually a huge thank you for the work that she's doing out there. Be sure to check her out on Twitter, social media and read some of her blogs, some very interesting insights. When I was editing this, it occurred to me, um, you know, all the discussion that we had around speaking to our partners about the way that calorie information affects us. It occurred to me this could be a really um, useful podcast for people who are living or helping another person with an eating disorder, whether that's your child, your partner, a friend, because we don't necessarily let you know when something has affected us. I mentioned that I had told my husband at one point in recovery, you know, seeing calories on foods and in restaurants completely derails my train of thought and makes it very difficult for me to make a non-eating disorder brain decision about what I'm going to eat. And he'd lived with me for four years, I think, by the time I told him that. And he hadn't a clue. And that's not his fault. That's because you would not have looked at me and thought that I had any problem walking into a restaurant and seeing that stuff. We don't let people know that's part of the illness, what's going on inside. Um, and so I think that's something very important. And I hope that that could have come across in this podcast, that if you know somebody with an eating disorder and you think, oh, I hadn't thought that they were affected by that sort of information. I, I, can, I feel very sound in saying, I, I think that they probably are. And they're just not letting you know that. And you might even ask them and they will tell you, oh, no, it's fine, I don't mind. It takes us to get a good way into recovery, I think, before we, we realize that opening up to other people um, and even allowing ourselves to admit things to ourselves is very important. I think for a while, I, I wouldn't sort of even allow myself to admit to anyone how much that sort of information threw me. If you have any ideas for things that you would like to hear a podcast on, eating disorder related, then please get in touch with me. A good way to do that is on Twitter. So tweet at me and my handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Oh, and if you're interested in that, you know, we spoke a little bit in there about lower levels of care and increasing support there. And um, that's kind of relevant because there's now a text support service for eating disorders. And this is peer support, not professional support, but um, it's text support run by people that have recovered from eating disorders. And um, it's um, provided through the company, Adra, that I set up, that's Active Eating Disorder Recovery for Adults. And the cool thing is, is that although it's peer support, so the 
um, coaches on there or the mentors on there are not professionals. They're not therapists and they're not dietitians. And we don't give advice on any of those things, actually. It's just more sort of in the moment support for if you're in, if you're shopping and you're having a mental crisis trying to choose between two items to buy, you can just text someone that gets it and say, I can't choose between two, these two things, but, you know, help me out here. Just give me some support. Give me some confidence. But the cool part is, is that if you are working with a dietitian or other treatment provider, such as a therapist, um, you, we can work with them too. And they can tell the coaches what they would like the coaches to help you work on in recovery. So that's really cool. It means that you can get peer support, which is uh, more accessible, let's say, than professional support in many cases. But we will work with your professional support so that you can maybe possibly have a little bit of both in there and the best of both so i do believe that for illnesses um, such as eating disorders which are with us 24 7 that the support has to be a lot more 24 7 as well we can't you can't wait until that hour that you have on a monday morning with your therapist you can't you know, the eating disorder doesn't wait until then to start giving you a hard time it gives you a hard time all the time and so I think that having tech support and really at your fingertips and in your pocket support is a game changer for this sort of thing. Um, if you're interested in that, then you can email me and my email is info at or you can check out our website, which is adulteatingdisorderrecovery.com and lots of information on that on there. Thanks for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.